Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today we're going to talk about uh, the goings-on at the Supreme Court, what has happened this week, which was kind of a big week, what is around the corner. And we are very fortunate to be joined by two of our friends who are among the best observers of the court. Katie Barlow is chief legal correspondent at Fox 5 here in D.C. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm great. Always fun to join you, David. We're very glad to have you join us. And Steve Vladek is a professor at the University of Texas Law School. How are you doing, Steve? Uh, you know, it's 84 in Austin, so it must be March. Wow. That really hurt, frankly. But uh, we're very happy that it's sort of low 50s here in D.C., I think, at the moment. But things are nonetheless heating up a bit at the Supreme Court. We had a couple of big cases in the past few days. Let me pick up with one of them, and then we'll go on to the next and perhaps the next. But I was quite interested in the, 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 the case that's come up regarding the potential legal liability of large social media platforms. And I'm interested in it for a couple of reasons. One, in my view, these are publishers that ought to have the same obligations as other publishers. But thanks to some twists in the law and misunderstanding of how things would evolve a few years ago, they have not had that so far. Um, But I'm also kind of interested in it from the perspective that we're entering new territory here with the court, because the core issue in this case is algorithms, and none of the members of the court are actually trained to understand what an algorithm is or how it could be used to serve or not serve the interests of the public. Um, Do you see these as important cases, Katie, for those reasons or others? Well, they're certainly important cases. I I was at oral argument for those cases, and I was trying to count to four on the justices who granted cert. I mean, it seemed like there were a number 
of justices who were interested in weighing in here before we heard oral argument, including most notably Justice Clarence Thomas, who has written even recently in a dissent from denial, you know, maybe it's time to take another look at Section 230. He has also been vocal about the power that the modern day social media companies have, you know, talking about removing Trump from Twitter's platform and things like that. But during oral argument, that wasn't quite the case. So it seemed very much like a hold your horses oral argument once we really got cooking because the justices seemed to be hesitant to actually weigh in here. So of course, it's an important case. But I think now the question is whether they will go all the way down that road or when looking at the two cases together, one was really about Section 230 and about whether these companies can continue to face these lawsuits. The other was about the Anti-Terrorism Act. And although Section 230 wasn't presented in that case, it will eventually come up if the case is allowed to go forward. And I think the justices could find a way out of both cases if they kind of decide the liability issue under the ATA uh, in the second case, uh, in, in that these types of, of lawsuits on aiding and abetting can't go forward. But I was trying to count the four on who the justices were on cert. I'm not sure I counted four from oral argument. And I'm, of course, I think they're important, but I'm, I'm not sure we're going to get a clear answer here from the court on this one. Steve, I saw a cartoon, I think it was in The New Yorker, that showed several of the justices approaching a genius bar in an Apple store saying, we need your help with these cases. Kind of new territory for them. Do you think they're up to it? Uh, no. <laughs> I, think, I, I don't think they think they are either. I mean, Justice Kagan, at one point in the Gonzalez argument, talked about how you know, these are not exactly the nine wisest experts on the internet. I, I'm with Katie on this. I think the court got sort of duped into granting both of these cases. To quote you know, Star Wars, these are not the droids they were looking for. And you know, I, I think that the the difference to me is sort of the issue that really seems to have fired up Justice Thomas and to a lesser extent Justice Alito is actually presented in a pair of other cases that are currently sitting on the court's docket about these social media restrictions that Texas and Florida have enacted. The court at the end of January asked for the Solicitor General to weigh in on whether those should be granted. The yes, she's going to say yes, because there's a circuit split between the 5th and 11th circuits. And David, that to me is where the real fight is, which is to say, to what extent do social media companies have First Amendment protections in this space? To what extent can states regulate them as if they were government actors in this space? And that's just not implicated at all um, by the debate over Section 230. I think the one place where maybe there's a little bit of, I don't know about daylight between Katie and me, but just sort of where I come at this a little differently is I actually think the Anti-Terrorism Act question in the second case is a really big deal unrelated to tech platforms. Um, There's a lot of litigation under that statute that has been pursued against banks, um, against pharmaceutical companies, against other, you know, sort of folks who have knowingly facilitated activities by ISIS over the last 10 years. And Congress in 2016 wrote a really broad statute. I wrote an amicus brief in that case that tries to suggest that the Ninth Circuit got that statute right. And so I think Katie's right that the obvious off-ramp for the court to avoid the 230 case is to say there's no cause of action in either case to narrow the Anti-Terrorism Act. I'm not sure that would be a more correct decision. It would actually be impactful in a different direction. To me, the best thing the court could do is dump both of them and do what we call dig, right? Dismiss as improvidently granted 
the writs of certiorari in both cases on the ground that like they thought they were getting one thing and they clearly got something very, very different. Katie, I saw you nodding while Steve was talking there. We were just having an internal debate with our SCOTUS blog team about whether there was actually going to be a dig here. And a number of us think there might be, at least in the 230 case. I also, I, I represented one of these banks when I was in private practice in one of these cases. And it would be a huge deal if the court decides that Twitter's activity was aiding and abetting here, not just for banks, but for all kinds of corporate active and individual activity. Where do you think the law ought to be on this? Because it seems to me that, you know, if some of these things were happening in a newspaper, we'd be having a different discussion. And I think clearly Section 230 has some problems. That's my personal view. Well, what, what do you think, Steve? I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, the, I mean, let's be clear. Like, this is a statute Congress wrote in 1996, right? The statute is older than Google. And I think that's, that's a pretty important point when we're talking about the modern infrastructure of the internet. If we were designing this as a blue sky matter, I think we really ought to be distinguishing between when platforms are literally doing nothing other than providing a place to post content versus when platforms are promoting content versus when platforms are deciding which content shows up in my feed and which content doesn't show up in my feed. Like Those seem to me to be pretty importantly different things. The problem is, is that once Congress starts saying, hey, platforms, you can be liable for those kinds of algorithmic decisions, well, then there go the sort of entire business model of the platforms, right? Because the platform's ability to generate revenue largely depends on their ability to tell advertisers that we're going to be able to put your ads in front of the right people and not, David, like a newspaper, just anybody who reads it. Right, that we're going to be able to do targeted advertising based on other features of the of the user. If there's liability for that kind of algorithmic sorting and algorithmic identification, those platforms are going to stop doing it. At which point, the entire business model of social media would have to change. So, I guess part of my problem is that I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not sure though that there's a clear way to write the statute in a way that would make the system operate better than it is today. And I think that's the problem that the justices ran into at the oral argument. Similar question, Katie. I, 1996, it's hard for some people to keep this in perspective. That's 27 years ago. I was in the Clinton administration. I know that in 1991, the World Wide Web was established. I know that in 1991, there were 11 million cell phones in the US. It wasn't until a decade later that we that we passed 100 million cell phones in the U.S. You know, Al Gore was out there talking about the information superhighway, which we didn't really know what that was or what it would entail. And virtually all of the big companies that we look at now, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they were all founded after this, TikTok. The reality is the people who wrote the law didn't know what they were writing a law about. So, you know, how do we fix that? There was actually a point made during oral argument that I think it was Amazon, just two years after the law was written, had already incorporated an algorithm of based on your recent purchase, here's the recommendation of what you people who bought this also buy. And they were trying to get at the point that, you know, Congress was contemplating algorithms at the time. Algorithms existed in some form or fashion. That felt, and maybe this is a generational thing, but that felt incredibly disingenuous now 
sitting in that courtroom comparing two years after the law was written, people who also bought algorithms to what exists now and the behemoth that it is. So I just, I didn't buy that argument. I don't know if the justices buy that argument, but I, I, I'm with Steve. I don't have the answer when it comes to algorithms, but I will also echo his sentiments and maybe take it even a little bit further that when we start down the path of more regulation of these internet companies, not only will it break down the business model, but it also starts to get uncomfortable when we start limiting what they can do and what they can't and who is speaking and who is publishing. And it just, there's some discomfort there once we start down that path. And there are hard choices that need to be made anytime we have new technology that involves people speaking. But I'll also say that I was doing an interview recently who pointed out, because I, for a long time, have talked about these social media spheres as, you know, the, the public town square. A lot of us do that. And that is also disingenuous and incorrect because the public town square is not full of bots, is not full of people who hide behind a mask that says they're 16 when they're really 25 years old. And so I just think we're in the middle of a moment of kind of rethinking how much we want to regulate these bodies. And there's some value to doing it, but there's some discomfort there too when it comes to, to protections for or speech. Steve, I don't want to put you in a bad position here, but what percentage of the students who go through the University of Texas Law School get any training at all in these new technologies? We actually probably come out relatively well on that question. We actually spend a lot of time on law and cyber, right? The, we have a couple of programs that are designed to provide cross-disciplinary training for students who want it with our computer science program at UT, it's still really low. I mean, I would say probably less than 10% of our students graduate with any sort of technical understanding of this issue. And even those that have it probably started with at least some when they came to law school. But we are making more of a push to have students who want to go into these fields have some kind of technical background. And I think that's probably inevitably going to be followed by other law schools as well. It's still the, the exception, David, not the rule. I guess my point is back in 1996 and when I was in the government, the technology was done by somebody down the hall, you know, the IT department. And now it infuses everything. And so it's not a, it's not a choice. It's something you have to understand if you want to understand the law. But perhaps, Katie, we'll get to this when legal chatbot 1.2 comes out and we start replacing lawyers with chatbots that can do research on the law better than them, but have hidden biases in their algorithms that uh, push them in one direction or another. That has been the looming threat in private practice and elsewhere for a long, long time, but I still haven't seen a, a good bot yet. I have a colleague, I mean, I have a colleague at UT, Susie Morse, who's been writing even before chatbot came along about the sort of the stickiness of all of these online tax providers that have these computer programs that are basically the tax providers implementation of the tax code. And the programs in some respects are getting the tax code wrong, right? And so there's this sort of really interesting mess of legal questions about what happens when software is getting law wrong in ways that actually produce consequences, in this case, for taxpayers. There are messy regulatory issues here, David, that go so far beyond just the question of when can you know, tech companies be sued for the content that's posted on their platforms. 
Yeah, and all sorts of biases can be built into algorithms, right? So, that, I mean, that gets you there. And I, you know, I, I know, Katie, that you say you haven't seen one, but, you know, I notice you're working in the media now. You know, yeah. I, well, I, to the algorithm point, I, I, that's what frustrated me about oral argument because they kept referring to the algorithm algorithm as something where you search, you type in a search term and then results for that come up. But the, the, nobody questioned the more insidious nature of the algorithm, which, you know, is when as a 13 year old girl, you search healthy recipes for like bagel sandwich and you start getting fed pro anorexic content. That discussion didn't come up. All the justices were just asking what happens when you search ISIS or search golf and get that stuff. So it seemed like there was a mismatch in in the underlying nature of, to your point, what can be built into an algorithm and the more insidious nature that they that they have. Yep. Apparently, the lawyers who produced the briefs for this didn't actually really deal with those issues in the briefs, and so there was some limit about which the the court could get to it. You know, there were almost a hundred, I think, amicus briefs in Gonzalez. I mean, I, I think the. The technical expertise was there. I just think that what the argument really revealed in a way that folks who don't watch the court for a living may not always appreciate is that what the justices are really being asked to do in the Gonzalez case is act as policymakers. We joke about the court sort of exercising this policymaking function, but the argument was literally not about what did Congress say in 1996 so much as it was about what should the statute say. And for once, I actually thought there was a decent amount of humility on the part of the justices that maybe that was a decision that was better left to Congress. Humility from the Supreme Court, that's uh, something new. But uh, let me approach that from a slightly different perspective as we look at another of the cases that was heard this week. And that had to do with forgiving student loans and the Biden administration's efforts to use the COVID epidemic as an excuse to trigger their ability to come up with emergency provisions, which have been, you know, I think they affected something like 44 million people. And, you know, court reporting is kind of interesting because it's kind of become a little bit like ESPN these days. And there's analysts on the sidelines and you go and you, they, you know, in real time, you're getting tweeting and then, you know, you get a story and the story the next day, both, the Washington Post, the New York Times had very similar headlines, which was court seems skeptical. Skeptical, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, of this. And it's kind of interesting because the people on the court who seem skeptical are also people who believe, that, you know, theoretically in sort of unitary executive imperial presidency, like super empowered presidencies in some circumstances but not this one, apparently. Katie? Well, I think the best way to think about this case is really in two different questions. And the first is whether we get a foot in the door with standing. And I'm sure we'll dive into that with everything that Steve has written on it. And I even have questions for Steve on it. And the second is the merits. Uh, And it seemed like there were clearly a number of justices who were very interested in the merits, but I'm not sure if They were just expressing their frustrations during oral argument because that was the time to do it. And I'm not sure if we'll make it past standing. I know the media narrative was it's doomed and there are enough votes for standing. There seems to to be a a group coalescing around that. I'm not 100% bought on that. I'm not sure we get a foot all the way in the door 
but we'll see. What do you think, uh, Steve? What, what was your reaction? So I, I think the one thing that's clear is if they're standing, the program is doomed, which, which you know, I think we could have predicted going into the argument, but I think we heard that. The standing question, I mean, I, I am all the way at the idiosyncratic extreme on this because I am a federal courts professor, but the Supreme Court has spent the better part of 50 years insisting that tight, carefully policed limits on the ability of the right plaintiff to come into court and sue are not just important, but are actually like, as Justice Alito wrote in 2007, the most fundamental principle about the role of the courts in our constitutional system. And the standing arguments in favor of the six red states challenging the program and the two private plaintiffs are so like facially incompatible with everything the Supreme Court has previously said. It took, I mean, David, it took Justice Alito basically trying to propose a new standing doctrine in the middle of the oral argument to have any legs to this. And so I'm with Katie. Like, I think the the headlines that the sort of the fate is sealed are probably missing how close the standing question is. But it's pretty remarkable that the standing question is close, given that it's been the conservative justices for a generation who have led the charge to narrow Article Three standing doctrine. And, you know, I, I don't know if Katie feels this way. I heard skepticism about standing pretty consistently from Justice Barrett during the oral argument. I didn't hear another conservative who, to me, is clearly hostile to the standing, at least of Missouri. And that's, frankly, flabbergasting to me, given where the conservatives have been taking standing jurisprudence in other cases. It just reinforces all of the charges about what standing doctrine really has been, which is a very sort of thinly veiled cover for political judges to avoid political decisions. That is a perfect point that I was going to make as what I can offer here is as someone who covers the court for a general audience and as a court reporter, explaining to people what standing is, is super important now. And in a way, we have all evolved in how we're covering the court. You can agree that the court are political actors or not, but how we cover the court and the politicization of what the court does and explaining procedural nuances to people now is really important in basic coverage of big cases. And so explaining standing making sure the audience understands and the history there to what Steve's point is and how it can be used politically and, and how for a long time it was kind of to the benefit of liberal cause celebs, including, you know, involving the environment. And now that the court is more conservative, you know, there seems to be more of a, well, let's get our foot in the door here. And also, you know, putting aside the whole conversation about SB8, which was designed to get around the problem of standing. And so just as a reporter who is thinking about how to explain these procedural nuances that are usually left for the law, you know, the law school classroom to a general audience, that's really important to me in my coverage now and making sure folks understand it because it's a part of this broader conversation we're having about the court and all of the tools that they have and the decisions that they make um, and the repercussions that they have about, you know, all the lawsuits that could come after, depending on how they decide the standing question here. And I do think that James Ramoser of SCOTUS blog made this point before I did, but Justice Kagan did seem to be making a play for Justice Kavanaugh in the oral argument, talking about the impact that this would have on future presidents and the executive if standing is found here. I think that was a play for Kavanaugh. And so I do agree that, you know, Justice Barrett at one point during the oral argument said, OK, so we have three different rules for state actors, one for state action doctrine, 
one for immunity and one for standing. So she was she was hesitant. And I think Kagan was going after Kavanaugh. So I still think that it's close and and we just won't know. And can I say, I mean, the, just to just to sort of e- emphasize Katie's point about the floodgates here, the theory of standing that Justice Alito floated, which I think would have to be what the majority would sort of hold their nose and adopt, is that Missouri is allowed to challenge the program. Missouri alone is allowed to challenge the program because Mohila, which is a state actor but is not the state, is injured by the program. Even though Mohila could sue itself if it wanted to, even though Mohila is insulated from the state of Missouri, by that logic, David, any state could sue to challenge any federal policy in the future that injures any state actor. And just to sort of put some meat on that, right? Like, I'm a state actor. I'm an employee of a public university. By the logic that Justice Alito's floating, anytime a federal law injured me, Texas could sue. That's insane. And that would just so fundamentally rewrite the role of the federal courts in our system that it's remarkable that we're even talking about this being close, although I agree that it is. Steve, I know you wrote on this, but the one question I wanted to ask you, and David, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to all of oral arguments, but there was another conversation that happened about universal vacatur during oral arguments where it's clearly a B in Justice Gorsuch's bonnet because he brought it up, but it's when you know lower court judges can put a hold on an entire program here when there were two individual people who received loans or might receive debt relief you know, a a judge can do a nationwide injunction, a universal vacatur will decide on the language. I wonder if the decision on standing might be a back way, at least in part, to address that issue. And I wanted to see if Steve had any thoughts on that, because that's that's a huge issue we're also going to see moving forward if these suits are allowed. So just one second, because I want to hear Steve's answer too. This is the point we take a break. We say to everybody who's joined us from the general public, thanks. And if you want to hear the rest of the podcast, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. And uh, it's like $5 a month. And you can be a member and you'll hear everything. 33% more content, great stuff. And that includes the answer to this question. But if you're not a member, thanks. And we'll see you again soon. And if you are, stand by and we'll hear the answer from Steve. 